Welcome to a podcast of a sermon delivered at the Unitarian Society of Ridgewood in New Jersey. Our congregation is a place where you will find inspiration in the richness of diverse beliefs and the power of community. Detailed information about the Unitarian Society of Ridgewood is available on our website, uuridgewood.org. Please join me in the words for lighting the chalice. They're printed in your order of service. We light this chalice for the light of the our matches for us. All right, let's all take a deep breath, including me. I want you to take a moment to revel in the glory of a new morning. The sun outside, the warmth and companionship of people inside these walls. Yeah, I do. We'll let Mary do this before we end. Give it a try. I don't know. On the bottom? On the bottom. Bottom. Okay. <laughs> Martin, help. Thank you, Mary. This is just a day, y'all. So let's do another deep breath. And take another. And I want you to listen to the sound as it calls us on, calls each of us to grow and to change, calls us to stop and be at peace, calls us to come together and know the power of community, calls us to become ourselves evermore each day. Take a deep breath and listen. This spring, I've been assistant coaching my oldest son's Little League team. It's actually the third year that I've been assistant coaching. It's one of the ways that I step into roles that were traditionally like dad roles. As a single mom, there are many other ways that that happens in our lives. Um, this year, my son graduated into the minors group, which is the seven to 10 year olds, like second to fourth graders. Our team, the Gray Werewolves, is a 13 player team of those 13 players, 11 are second graders, so youngest in the age group. We've got one third grader, one fourth grader, and many of our kids are new or practically new to baseball. So we had a wide range of natural ability, but also a wide range of experience. And we came at our season with three objectives for the kids to try their best, to learn the game, and to become a team. If it helps to know, the head coach that I assistant for is also a minister. So we coached with those three goals in mind. We did not coach to win. And y'all, we lost every single game. <laughs> every single regular season game. Week after week, though, our kids showed up for practices and worked hard. And week after week, they played their games with spirit and with heart. And 
Week after week, they took their losses like champs. And all of them could tell you what those three objectives were, to try their best, to learn the game, and to become a team. So our league is very small. So despite our magnificent losing record, yesterday we played the first place team for a spot in the championship. <laughs> I kid you not. On the way there, my oldest says to me, we're probably going to lose. I said, okay, yeah, but you still play and you play your hardest. And he said to me, you know, if you try your best and you have fun, but you lose, you still won. And if you don't try your best and you don't have fun, but you win, you lose. We agreed, you do all you can do. And even if you think there's no hope, you play your best, you give it all you've got, and you let yourself have fun. Now, I can't tell you what was in the air yesterday or what coalesced in the moment, but we won the game. I know, it's so proud. And I, I thought a lot about this, and I don't know if it's because they felt zero pressure and the number one team had totally psyched themselves out. I don't know if it's that all of their work suddenly just came together. I don't know if it's because our kids had zero fear of making mistakes or of failure. It could have just been dumb luck, but it was amazing. And while the head coach and I were incredibly proud of this particular win, we were genuinely prouder of how all season long, right up until this game that I promise you we all thought we were gonna lose, they just kept showing up and they kept giving it everything they had, every last one of those kids. So often, we adults forget the truth of these rare sports dog underdog moments. We forget that it really actually is possible, that unexpected things happen, that with hard work and with commitment, with our presence and our joy, we can actually make change in ourselves, in others, in systems that seem hopeless. But we have to keep showing up. We have to keep doing the work and keep finding the joy and keep becoming more and more ourselves, finding our strengths, finding our voices, finding our happiness and our purpose and our path. So this morning, we gather with gratitude for all who show up week after week, never giving up, never giving in, and who with their determination help to change the world. Every Sunday when we gather together, we take time in our service for quiet, for meditation and reflection. And we come now into that time together. I invite you to breathe deeply and slowly as you find a comfortable position for your body. This morning on Father's Day, we will give thanks. We give thanks for the fathers we have known in our own lives. Fathers by blood or by heart, adoptive fathers, uncles, grandfathers, friends, teachers, fathers for whom we use that term and those we call by other names. And we give thanks for the fathers that showed us kindness, nurtured and protected us, taught us and challenged us, mentored us and gave us courage. And today, even as we celebrate the best of fathering, we hold in our hearts all those who never wanted to become fathers but found themselves thrust into that role, all those who took on fathering where it wasn't required, 
all those who suffered at the hands of people who were supposed to be fathers, but instead showed cruelty or anger. And we hold in our hearts all those who feel only disappointment when they hear that word. All those fathers who, for whatever reason, can no longer father their children. All those who felt the lack of a father and those who never minded the absence of one. All those who wished to be fathers but have struggled to find ways to live into that role. As we come into silence, we remember that days like today are complicated, that each of us has a unique relationship to that word. Each of us has known fathering from a vast array of people in our lives. And each of us has the ability to take on the best of paternal qualities. In the silence, we honor fathers, fathering and fatherhood. I invite you to speak into the silence the names of any fathers living or past that you honor this morning. On this day of celebration, may we find the strength to forgive and let go of hurts and angers and disappointments. And may we remember the joyous ways in which we have been fathered in our lives. So may it be. Just um, last weekend, I got a call from a dear friend of mine who's also named Sarah. She was calling to let me know that she had spent the day in the emergency room with a friend of hers, someone I've never met. Um, my friend, Sarah, accompanied her friend Kay to the emergency room because Kay had been badly beaten. Kay identifies as a genderqueer, transmasculine person and uses the pronoun they. Kay had been making their way to their car when they were rushed by a woman with a gun and a couple of guys. Kay was very badly hurt as slurs were shouted at them on that first weekend of Pride Month, 50 years after Stonewall. Kay experienced a concussion, one that may be bad enough to leave lasting damage. My friend Sarah thankfully convinced Kay to go to the hospital to get checked out. Kay understandably won't be making a police report because they know from prior experience that the police will not do much more than compound the harm and trauma that Kay has experienced. Kay plans to leave the city they live in because the prejudice and violence there is more than they want to bear again, understandably. They were the victim of a vicious attack because somehow Three people felt they had a right to decide who is acceptable and who isn't. They were hurt because some folks are raised to believe that their hatred and fear and self-righteousness gets to determine what genders have a right to exist, what races have a right to exist, what religions have a right to exist, what ethnic groups or cultures or traditions they were beaten because some folks are raised to believe that their hatred and fear and self-righteousness gets to determine who loves who and how and what counts as proper and right and good and moral. There is a nexus of sins in this country, and I don't use the word sin very often, as you know. And what I mean when I say sin is a deviation from the wholeness and the oneness and the love of all beings that we believe in. 
Those sins that we still suffer from are the perpetuation of a white supremacist culture and the perpetuation of the patriarchy through the propagation of toxic masculinity. And then all the prejudices, racism, and misogyny and more that are baked into those systems. We've talked here before about white supremacist culture. The organization showing up for racial justice defines it this way, quote, white supremacy culture is the ideology that white people and the ideas, thoughts, beliefs, and actions of white people are superior to people of color and their ideas, thoughts, beliefs, and actions. White supremacy culture is an artificial, historically constructed culture which expresses, justifies, and binds together the United States white supremacy system, end quote. We've talked here about the characteristics of white supremacist culture, how it operates on a systems level, so that even those who are not personally, individually racist are participating by definition in a system of racism and oppression that not only normalizes but privileges white identity, white experience, and white need. I stood up here last year and preached about the Me Too movement, and I have stood up here and talked about gender identity and sexuality and our deep commitment to each and every person being given the space to be truly and honestly themselves, but I have not stood up here and talked about toxic masculinity. And today I'm going to. And it's not a coincidence that we're going to do it on Father's Day during Pride Month, because this thing, this phenomenon known as toxic masculinity, it impacts all of us, and it's discernible in the most seemingly innocuous things, like Father's Day ads that offer up power tools and cars and guns, to the most heinous things, like the attack on Kay. The Good Men Project, which launched in 2009 and whose mission is to help facilitate conversations about what manhood is, describes toxic masculinity this way, and I'm quoting from their website. Toxic masculinity is a narrow and repressive description of manhood, designating manhood as defined by violence, sex, status, and aggression. It's the cultural ideal of manliness, where strength is everything while emotions are a weakness, where sex and brutality are yardsticks by which men are measured, while supposedly feminine traits, which can range from emotional vulnerability to simply not being hypersexual, are the means by which your status as man can be taken away. So the idea in their definition of this is that toxic masculinity is not actually manhood. Like, let's be very clear about that. It's not actually what defines or makes a man. It's the culturally inherited, narrow, and restrictive vision that we have allowed to become the definition of being a man in our culture. The Good Men Project clarifies by saying, this in and of itself is the problem in a nutshell. For many people, the toxic ideas of masculinity are synonymous with being a man. The problem isn't about gender, genitalia, or identity. It's about what we allow to be the definition of what it means to be a man. So that phrase, Toxic masculinity recognizes that we have collectively allowed a definition that is violent at the expense of others' safety, emotionally repressed at the expense of men's wholeness, strong at the expense of vulnerability and honesty, sexual at the expense of others' autonomy and agency, and aggressive at the expense of community. Again, the point here is that this is a narrow vision that does not represent the reality of manhood or of all men. 
Colleen Cullens, a teacher on a, a blog for the site Teaching Tolerance, put it this way. Discussing toxic masculinity is not saying men are, are bad or evil, and the term is not an assertion that men are naturally violent. After decades of study, I deeply believe that men are not naturally violent. But in a culture that equates masculinity with physical power, some men and boys will invariably feel like they are failing at being a man. She explains that when they feel like they're failing, some men and boys then take those masculine traits, those toxic masculine traits, to extremes that are illegal and harmful and death-dealing in some cases. Toxic masculinity shows up in so many different ways. I imagine many of you who identify as male were told at one point or another in your life to man up, or were told that men don't cry. For many men, emotional honesty isn't modeled well, if at all. Anger is preferable to sadness. Physical affection, other than sexual touch, isn't modeled. Those necessary casual things like hugs and hand-holding and arms around each other so often are viewed as a sign of weakness. Close friendships between men aren't always encouraged because, heaven forbid, it should look like something other than friendship or that a man should need anything from anyone. Those are just like tiny examples of the ways that toxic masculinity infects our culture and impacts boys as they become men. Because anyone who has known a little person who identifies as a boy knows that young little humans have not yet internalized those gendered markers, these toxic and infectious ways of being. Just like any other child, they cry if they are inclined to, they snuggle when they want to, and with help, they can share their emotions like most children can. But time, society, growth, and the culture of toxic masculinity drums the sensitivity and gentleness and openness out of them all too often. Mark Lamont Hill, who's a leader in the Black Lives Movement, posted a picture of himself as a little boy last month on Instagram and wrote the following. My mom showed me this fuzzy pic of myself as a child a few days ago. The image took me back to a whole different world. Being a little black boy in North Philly who learned to read early, took piano lessons, and cried just a little too much, I had to figure out how to navigate a social world with very limited and narrow ideas about who we could be. In figuring that out, I learned some important things. How to fight, how to navigate different social worlds, how to appreciate the wide and beautiful range of ways that blackness shows up. But I also learned so many unhealthy lessons about masculinity, emotionality, and self-love. Every day, I fight to unlearn those lessons and rediscover the beauty and innocence of this boy. I miss him. A culture of toxic masculinity does not only hurt the people whose lives are altered by men who engage in violence and aggression and overly sexualized behavior. It also hurts the men whose wholeness is diminished as their sensitivity, their needs, their emotions, and their fullest selves are subverted in service of some distorted vision of manliness. Mark Lamont Hill captures that so poignantly, right? And so does James Baldwin in that letter to his nephew. I recommend that you go online and read the whole letter. I was struck as I reread it by this particular passage. I remember with pain his tears, which my hand or your grandmother's so easily wiped away. 
but no one's hand can wipe away those tears he sheds invisibly today, which one hears in his laughter and in his speech and in his songs. James Baldwin and Mark Lamont Hill speak to the experience of black boy children coming to black adult malehood and the cost. But Baldwin, toward the end of the passage we read and deeper into that letter, also holds to account the people and society that creates such an erasure of wholeness. Decades after Baldwin's letter, white supremacy culture and toxic masculinity continue to work hand in hand to rip the possibility of wholeness from all of us. And also none of us are innocent. We're complicit in the perpetuation of these sins. Any of us who's ever uttered the phrase, man up, or told a boy to walk it off when we might have treated a girl child differently, any of us who's ever denied a child of any gender to the right to wear whatever color they want or to play with whatever toys they want, any of us who's questioned the self-determination of a youth who tells us who they are or who they love, we've been complicit in a system of oppression that, as I've said before, interrupts our becoming as individuals and as a collective. Think of Reverend Evan Carvel Zemer's piece about fathering. How many people feel ambivalent about fathering or ill-equipped to father because of how they've been conditioned socially? Often I stand up here and I say that we are on a journey our whole lives. We are becoming. We are uncovering ourselves in our fullest and deepest and truest wholeness and we are working every day to become ourselves. But so much gets in the way. So much wants to interrupt that becoming expectations that others place on us, our own desire to get to the end goal faster, the priorities of wealth and power that our society encourages, the narrow confines that culture pushes us into. The work of our becoming is lifelong and it's made so much harder by the world around us questioning us and by our internalized sense of our own limitations and requirements. What would the world look like if everyone could just be themselves without fear of gun-toting hate mongers in parking lots, without fear of making mistakes and failing, without labels and boxes? What would that world be? When I hear stories of incidents like the one that happened to Kay, honestly, I worry that the world is so far beyond our ability to fix. Baldwin wrote that one can be, indeed, one must strive to become tough and philosophical concerning destruction and death, for this is what most of mankind has been best at since we have heard of man. And how true that is, we are so good at death and destruction and limiting each other, so good at tearing each other down and working against oneness and love. But Baldwin also took great care to write to his nephew Remember, most of mankind is not all of mankind, and how true that also is. There are so many pockets of goodness and progress, so many moments of wholeness and love and unity to be found, and there are truly things that we can do, each and every one of us, to increase those moments. We can work to interrupt toxic masculinity culture, I'm sure you can come up with many more phrases than just the man up one, some of which I would never say from the pulpit. Stop saying them. I've been working to train them out of my own colloquial speech. 
Let's be more conscious of how our language makes behavioral demands of or judgments on people of all genders. Interrupt it by being the one who supports sensitivity, emotions, tenderness in boy-identified children and youth. Allow space for feelings and tears. Model what it looks like to cry and to emote and to share and to talk as a person of any gender, but especially those of you who are male-identified. Model what that looks like. Educate yourselves on LGBTQIA issues. This is a great moment to do it during Pride Month. Learn about the different terms and the ways that folks are living their truths and embracing their own wholeness with pronouns and fashion choices and in a hundred different ways. Educate yourselves on the links between white supremacy culture and toxic masculinity. Check out groups like the Good Men Project. Support groups that are helping to push forward the conversation about progressive 21st century visions of manhood. And don't stop becoming. In your own life, don't stop seeking to come ever closer to your own wholeness. Take your journey seriously and take seriously the commitment you have to make that journey doing as little harm as possible to others. Even more, better yet, support others in their journey. Every act of deep and true becoming that each of us engages in is an act of love, an act of resistance, an act of hope in a world desperately starved for these things. And every time that we make space for others to become, we are helping to heal the world. So don't stop becoming. Keep showing up, trying your best, finding joy in your life and in yourself and in your journey. One day at a time, we can break the cycle of sin and oppression, and we can create the space for all of us to become whole and holy ourselves. So may it be. Please join in the words for extinguishing the chalice. They're printed in your order of service. We extinguish this flame. fire burn bright in our hearts until we are together again go reminded that there is hope the world can actually change we just need to try our best show up every day remember that we are part of a team and find joy and offer love wherever we can go in peace